these last couple days, we've had culture conference. Has anyone uh, been with us the last couple days through these sessions? Man, wasn't it a cool, rich time learning together? I, yeah, amen. I, I am so encouraged by the posture of our church over the last couple days. It feels like one of those weekends where it, it seems like we've gone deeper together. And we learned that we can stand firm and confident on a biblical view of sexuality and of marriage, a historical view of that. And at the same time, we're challenged to be a more loving people to the world around us, how to show up in our world with both truth and grace. We had a couple incredible guest speakers with us. One was named Sam Alberry, who flew back across the country yesterday. And one is named Drew Berryessa, who's here today. And our lead pastor, Jeff, is going to have a conversation with him that really wraps a, a bow on on our conference. Drew is the executive director of a alivingletterministries.org, which is a whole platform that's committed to helping people find sexual healing from sexual brokenness because of the gospel, to be transformed by the gospel and walk in wholeness from that. He's a pastor up in Medford, Oregon, and he is also uh, the author of a book called Are We There Yet?, which is all about sexual brokenness and the road to gospel transformation. I'm going to pray for them, and they're going to come up and lead us in a conversation. Would you pray with with me. Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for your love and your faithfulness and your goodness. I'm so thankful for this church body, Lord, that would engage in something hard, would engage in something honest and vulnerable in an attempt to be equipped to become more like Jesus. God, we want to become more like you. We want to grow to love the world how you love the world. We want to grow to love truth how you love truth. God, would you make us both full of truth, full of grace? Would you grow our faith today? Remove any fear or anxiety or reactivity, even in the conversations we have. God, would you grow our faith, grow our love for you? We love you so much, Jesus, and praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jake. Well, can you guys welcome with me Drew Berryessa? Um, we're so thrilled. Thank you for being here. Um, we, as Jake said, our, our heart and our intention is to give you some um, confidence in the biblical truth that we hold fast to at ABC, but, but then to give you some tactical tools. Um, at how do we engage a culture that doesn't always agree with our biblical worldview? And how do we do that the way Jesus does that? How do we engage with our world and love our world the way that Christ loves our world? I think you're going to be encouraged with what Drew has to say in that regard. Um, just a sort of a um, you know, foundation for us to stand on as we move forward through this conversation, because I know not everybody's been here all weekend, but we've spent some time this weekend um, looking at what is a biblical historical view of sexuality. And um, just to sort of um, alleviate any tension you might feel over that um, or question you might have over that. Uh, as a church, um, our belief is that marriage ought to exist between one man and one woman um, as is designed in Scripture. And so we stand on that uh, view of sexuality as it relates particularly to marriage. Um, and, and Drew would hold to the same belief. And so we spring off of that um, truth to ask the question, what are the implications for that in our world? And how do we interact with the world that doesn't always view it that way and do so in grace? And so um, Drew is uniquely qualified to have this conversation with us. Um, he told me so. Yes. Um, <laughs> But uh, based on your story, um, your family, you know, there's, there's a number of things. But tell us, why do you um, have the ability uh, to share specifically on this topic with us as a church this morning? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, I approach this topic from a couple different platforms of understanding. First and foremost being that I myself have struggled with my sexual identity and sexual orientation. You know, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was four years old, but every Christian in this room can recognize that just because you love and follow Jesus does not make you immune to struggle, to temptation, and to the brokenness in our world. And so that was a struggle that I had. I loved Jesus and followed him from four years old, but at around 12 years old, I began to recognize that my, my sexual attractions were to men and not to women. And that was honestly very terrifying to me. Growing up in the, in the 80s and the early 90s, the church was very vocal about what they thought about that community and what they felt that God felt about that community. And so there wasn't really a safe place for me to go within my church or my church culture to find help or to be honest about my struggle. And so 
I hid it and tried to repress it and tried to pray it away like a lot of people do. And that did not prove very helpful or successful for me. And so years into that struggle, I gave in to that temptation and entered into a gay relationship at 19 years old. But I did also what a lot of Christians do who struggle with sin, and that's hide their sin over here and continue to live their Christian life over there. And existed in that relationship for about four or five months before the conviction of the Holy Spirit really landed hard on my life. And I surrendered that relationship and committed to walk forward with Jesus in obedience, but did not confess my struggle until two years after surrendering that relationship. And, you know, beyond that, then found a ministry uh, in Portland, Oregon, that I began to be discipled through and, and led through healing and restoration in my own sexuality and identity. And of course, for a lot of people, you know, well, that's platform number one. I myself have experienced this and struggled with this and had to surrender this to the Lordship of Christ. And I've experienced transformation and healing and redemption through it. And, you know, in this, involved in this ministry in Portland, uh, I did experience the Lord ministering to me powerfully there. And like a lot of people, once you've received help, once you've received healing, you just want to give it back. And so I began volunteering in that ministry for about four or five years and then had the opportunity to join the full-time staff and spend over 10 years in full-time vocational ministry and 15 years total at that ministry, helping walk hundreds of men and women through surrendering their sexuality and their identity to the Lordship of Christ, and then having the opportunity to minister to parents and families who were dealing with loved ones who had embraced this idea, this identity, and this community, and helping them figure out how do I love my loved one and be faithful to the truth of Scripture. And so that's platform number two of understanding of, I'm not just a client, I am an employee, <laughs> you know, that was a joke. You can laugh or not. Uh, but, you know, I spent all those years of ministry doing that. And then about eight or nine years ago, began my ministry traveling across the country and helping equip the body of Christ to respond. Because it's one thing to have a small ministry that is equipped to deal with this. But really, this is an issue the body of Christ needs to know how to address and know how to minister to those that are hurting and broken. And the third thing that, I, that uniquely qualifies me to this is that this is not just principle or, or theory for me. I have loved ones in my own life, people I dearly care for and in a relationship with, that are in the LGBTQ community, and in particular, and most powerfully, my identical twin brother and his partner. Everything that I speak about, I have had to fight to learn and understand and practice in the lab of my life. And I have not been always perfect at it, and I've made huge mistakes, which have also been very instructional and very helpful to know how do we best respond to this, both marrying truth and love together in a gracious and merciful and yet faithful to the word of God response, and that it can actually be life-giving and good and maintain relationship with those who disagree in that. And then you reminded me earlier a couple times today that I have a fourth platform of understanding in this because... Although I have been transformed, I have like grown in my relationship with the Lord. I also have had the opportunity and the joy of being married to my wife, Suzanne, of 19 years. And now I have three wonderful daughters, 16, 14, and 9, which I always say having daughters makes me struggle with men very differently than I did before in my former life. And I've had to train and teach them to engage in a world that is very, very different and very, very uh, hostile to Christianity, a different world than I grew up in. And so it's not just that all those other things. I am also in the same seat as a lot of parents who are fig trying to figure out how do I teach my kids to remain faithful to the word of God and engaged in a world that needs the gospel. So, yeah, absolutely. And we're all hungry for that, that very principle. How do we do this? How do we do this as families, as parents, as kids, as brothers and sisters? And we're going to come back to some of the tactics of that um, because I think you have some really helpful insight into that. Um, before we do that, though, let me go back. You, you mentioned that uh, you received or you experienced transformation um, by stepping into an organization in Portland. And uh, you shared with me yesterday that uh, they, they didn't tell you that their goal was to make you straight. Right. What did they tell you their goal was when you walked into that organization? Absolutely. It was one of the most freeing moments of my life uh, when my first night in this discipleship program, the director of the ministry got up there and he said, hey, our goal here is not to turn you straight. Number one, we don't have that power. And number two, we can't make that guarantee. 
But what we are here to do is to draw you into a deeper and more surrendered relationship with Jesus, and he can tell you who you are. Because the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It is being holy unto the Lord. And honestly, that's the call for all believers, that we are called whether we ever get married or whether we are single or whether we struggle with our gender identity or our sexual orientation or whatever struggle we have in this life, the call we have as believers is to surrender our lives to Jesus and to be sanctified in him, to be conformed to his image from glory to glory as the scripture says. And for me, that was so incredibly freeing because I did not believe that these attractions and these feelings were going to change. And and there's no guarantee in scripture that they would. But what I am guaranteed in scripture is that the Lord receives me, he makes me his own, and that he will transform me into his image, and that whatever else I face, his grace is sufficient for me. Amen. That's a beautiful, Drew. Would you say then that your struggle um, was maybe even, I don't know if deeper is the right word, but broader than just sexual identity? Was there deeper identity issues that you felt were part of that process? Oh, for sure. I always say it was the biggest bait and switch of my life where I went to this ministry thinking I had one problem and that was my sexual orientation. And as I began to grow and learn, I'm like, crap, I have 10,000 problems that are like all feeding into this thing. And, and honestly, you know, when I began to recognize that for years, I had prayed, Lord, take these feelings away from me. And I, I hadn't had this opportunity to say this here yet, but there's a reason why God doesn't answer that prayer is because my sexual orientation struggle was a symptom of other problems. It wasn't the problem itself. And God is often referred in the scriptures as a great physician. He, he is our healer. And what good doctor would you go to and say, hey, doctor, I have a headache. Give me something for the pain, would then take your recommendation on what it is to treat and what the problem is and say, sure, here, medicate the 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 heck out of this symptom. No, the great physician would say, let's find the real problem that's causing the symptom. And, you know, when I began to learn that there were so many other issues, my identity issues, my relationship with the Father, my understanding of God's will and his humanity and my own sin and so many other things, that the Lord was so faithful to me to not take away the symptom because if he had, I never would have been motivated to seek healing in all the causes. That's an encouraging but really hard reality. Oh, yeah. Be encouraged by the difficulty of that statement. <laughs> yeah. And I think we sit in that. And I'm reminded of, um, of Ephesians 1. When you, you start talking about identity, it makes me, it leads me to believe that the sexual identity or gender identity, if you want to call it that, issue just stands in line with a whole plethora of other identity issues not more significant than others, maybe different consequences, yep. um, but it seems as though there's a whole mess of identity issues that, that maybe the, the, the very thing that um, we all struggle with is believing who we are in Christ as opposed to what our gender is or what our sexuality is or what our you know, denomination is or whatever the other things are. Um, talk to us a little bit about the the construction or reconstruction maybe in that scene of your identity what did it mean to rebuild that identity for absolutely you? Uh, such a good question and I, and I do agree I think that you know for me the main struggle was my sexual identity sexual orientation issues but every single one of us are tempted by the enemy and by our culture to find our identity and significance in so many other things in the Lord and we're vulnerable to that for a number of reasons. And one for me is because I did not have an accurate understanding of the heart of God for me. Many of us in, in our childhoods or our church experiences experience distortions of who God is, and we project our experiences onto the character of God. And so one of the things that the Lord really had to do for me is he had to tear all those things down to bring me to the foundation of who he is first. Because ultimately, that's where we find our security and our safety and our foundation is in the character and, and personhood of God, who he is. And when we begin to learn who he truly is, then we get to learn who we are in relation to him because we are his children and we are made in his image. And when we begin to then learn who we are in him, then we learn where we belong and then we learn what we're made for. And so for me, that process of just tearing all of those distortions down and finding out, okay, God, who are you really? And who am I in relation to you? And more than, like, I even say this now, like, 
I have wonderful identity and wonderful things that the Lord has given me. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I'm a father. I, I have all these things that I get to do, but none of them are who I truly am. And if I lost my ministry and lost my wife and lost my kids and lost all those things, at the bedrock of it, I am a child of God. And that is where I find my identity. And that is where everything else flows from. And, you know, for all of us in the church, we, we, are, we have this call to examine where are we truly finding our identity? Where are we truly finding our significance? Because there are good things we build those things on that become idols and distortions of who we truly are. And so, yeah. It reminds me of uh, just this simple truth in Ephesians 1 uh, where it says, Paul writes in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that the goal was holiness. The goal wasn't heterosexual marriage. The goal wasn't become a pastor or become a father or fill in the blank. The goal was that we should be holy and blameless before him, it says, in love. And then verse 5, he goes on to say, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to his purpose and his will. The identity that comes from his refinement is childhood. It's not right. male or female or heterosexual or homosexual. It's No, it's childhood. That's the ultimate identity goal. Yeah. And I think the, the ability we have to misplace that value um, is rampant in our society, not just in the um, the sexuality context, right? Absolutely right. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about some of the maybe the the idols that you've seen in the church, um, identity idols, um, things that have been set up as the ultimate goal, and maybe even how church culture has played into that in your experience? Well, absolutely. I think there's a couple things we could point to immediately. One being, well, let's just talk about marriage. You know, we've, we've kind of elevated marriage into this point of like, you've arrived if you've gotten married. But I mean, how many people here are married? Raise your, raise your hands. I have to talk about my sexuality. You have to admit if you're married. So I think all of you would recognize that just because you got married did not mean you've reached the peak of humanity and you are fully mature and fully formed. I think it takes a day into marriage when you realize I'm a horrible, selfish person. And then if you add children onto that, then you really have to die to self over and over again. Um, and so there's that, that thing where we've elevated something that God has given us to reflect his relationship with us that he has called us into relationship and commitment with him and to relationship with him where he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And marriage here and now is just meant to reflect and point us to that reality. Like when I married my wife, I made that vow of, I choose you forsaking all others. And, and that says, you know, I won't commit adultery, but idolatry is spiritual adultery to our bridegroom. When we go to something or someone else to meet the needs and fulfill the love needs that the Lord wants us to have with him. And so marriage has become a bit of an idol, and that hurts people in, in our communities who aren't married and who may never have the opportunity to get married. And so we, we have to recognize that. I think another one I mentioned I mentioned earlier last service, and you said, be careful, and I just want to let you Don't know. go after moms, Drew. Listen, there were moms in the moms. back room that were like, get it, Drew, Go! <laughs> And so, you know, often in parenting, you know, I see this with a lot of moms. They find a lot of their identity wrapped in their children and how they're raising their children and how their children, you know, turn out. And, you know, that is also can be an idol that is not only really destructive to your identity, but it can be destructive to your children, too, because if if how they perform dictates whether you feel secure or good of yourself, that's not okay. And it's not free. You're not free because you can't control the outcome of your children. You know, there's the, the wonderful proverb, raise up, uh, you train up your children in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they won't depart from it. Well, that's proverbial wisdom, not a promise. It says most of the time. So if you bank on that, and then your kids go wayward, now there's a threat to your identity. Before anything else, you are a daughter of the king. And no matter what else in your life, that is the security you can find, is you are his, and he is yours. And motherhood, fatherhood, for a lot of fathers, it's performance, it's success, it's how you provide, and those things become idols. And, you know, if you lose your job or if, you know, you're somehow not as excellent as you think you ought to be, then your identity is threatened. No, guys, you're sons of a good father. And if everything else were to disappear, that's who you are. 
And so there's, we can go 9,000 different directions because the enemy tempts us all to believe so many different things about our identity, trying to pull us away from who we are as sons. And I think that we can look back to Jesus in the desert where Satan tried to tempt him so many times. And each time, really, it was an assault against his identity. And he knew who he was as a son. And so that's a great example for us to follow, that um, we need to know who we are as children of God. That's so good. It's such a great reminder. I think when we approach this conversation, a lot of times um, we're, we're standing on shaky ground because we're not sure who we are. Right. And that produces fear. And fear isn't a helpful way to have conversations. Um, I think one of the things that's helpful for us in these kind of environments is just um, to establish what we know, to establish who we are, and to eliminate some of those fears. And so um, maybe for a minute, you could just talk to us about how to engage with this conversation um, in an educated way that would maybe eliminate some of the fear. If I'm sitting down with someone that's um, professing to be a, um, you know, transsexual or a bisexual or, you know, that they're same-sex attracted, and I, I get afraid because I'm I'm not sure what to say or how to respond to that. Give us maybe some biblical Jesus way methods for approaching that. Jesus kung fu in those moments, yes. Um, Well, first and foremost, we need to take responsibility to know what we are for and what we believe in. Often we are responding and trying to to, uh, confront falsehoods, but we aren't secure in what we truly believe. And so I just want to encourage all of you, Sexuality is an integral part of absolutely every person who walks this earth, and it is one of the most consistent illustrations and parables that God uses to describe his relationship with us. The Bible starts with marriage, it ends with marriage, and he calls himself, God calls himself the husband to his people in the Old Testament, and Christ calls himself the bridegroom to the bride in the New Testament. And so if we don't have a working understanding of what God's intention for sexuality and for masculinity and femininity are, then when we are confronted with falsehoods or deception or what other people believe, we don't know what the authentic thing is to know how to respond to the inauthentic thing. And so first and foremost, take the time to press into the difficult the difficult uh, information or conversation about biblical sexuality and and why is that significant? Uh, and then when we're confronted with you know people who have different views, I would say the first thing that we need to do is learn how to be good listeners. You know, often where we're listening to people to respond to them, we're trying to formulate. Have you ever done this? Like you're listening to an argument and you're not listening to the argument. You're listening or you're trying to formulate your response in your head to the argument. Oh, come on, don't look at me like that. How many of you, raise your hand if you know. Thank you, brave souls. Yeah, you all know. And when we're, when we're faced with these situations, we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing, and we're so consumed in our head with, I don't want to say the wrong thing, that we are literally not listening to what they're saying. And so we can learn, if we can learn to ask good questions when someone is describing how they identify or what their life looks like, like if someone, I mean, there is now over 86 different gender identities Five years ago, there was 35. They're going to continue to grow as in our world of relative truth and what I feel is my truth. They're going to continue to grow in their labels and expressions. It is impossible to know them all and to understand every single one. So instead of trying to, what we can learn to say is, interesting, what does that mean to you? When you are identifying like this, what does that mean to you? Explain how you came to that identity and what that identity means to you. And then as you're listening to their story and listening to what they're saying, do not feel the pressure to respond. And instead, thank them for sharing with you their understanding of themselves and maybe say, I'd like to come back to this conversation in a little while when I've had an opportunity to process it and to think about it. Honestly, what, when we do that, we are, we are showing respect and dignity to people by valuing them enough to hear their perspective without trying to tell them they're wrong or trying to talk them out of it or trying to rebut their, their perspective. Instead, we honor them and we show them respect and dignity by listening to them and by valuing their perspective, not necessarily agreeing with it, but seeking to understand it. Well, and that, that leads me to another fear that I have in that very conversation 
yeah, I want to listen well. I want to engage. I want to lean in and, and, and love the way that Jesus loved by having these conversations and um, entertaining these sort of relationships. But my fear, I think, is at some level that will communicate affirmation Absolutely. of their decision. So what would you say to that? How do we navigate that? Yeah, I would say that's a very valid fear. I think that when we are showing dignity and respect and we're making space for people in our lives, um, you know, and this is a danger that we fall into in the church where the church has a tendency to go to one extreme or the other, whether you're like, I'm going to be a truth teller and me telling you the truth is my act of love to you. Uh, do better than that because truth without it incarnated in love is not truthful. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people like, I'm just going to love you. I'm just going to love you into the kingdom of God. Well, love without truth is not loving. And so there is a danger that if we're sitting and listening and, and seeking to understand, but never actually bring our perspective, even if we're not personally affirming or approving of their choices or their perspective, by passivity, it could be received that way. So if you just listen and never respond or never offer perspective, that other person very well might believe that you agree with them and that you affirm their beliefs. And so we do have a responsibility when we walk into relationship with people and we try to understand them that there is mutuality and mutual exchange in relationship, even if there's risk, that we have to be bold and we have to be willing to share our perspective, but first giving space to learn and understand theirs. But that might look like saying, hey, I thank you for sharing. I want to come back to this conversation at another time when there's more time and there's time for me to process this, but come back to the conversation and being willing to say, I love you and I respect you and I respect that you don't, you don't have the same beliefs that I have and it's not my job to convince you, but I do want to share with you what my perspective is and do so in a loving and respectful and kind way. That's so helpful. And, and then that kind of leads to the... Um, the additional layers of relationship that might kind of creep in once we've engaged, I think the next question is, okay, we've listened well, we've communicated, you know, what we believe um, back, but then there's going to be opportunity to attend a wedding or to invite someone to your home or to participate in some sort of um, event where there's going to be your, you know, a friend and their partner. How do you navigate that when you're worried that you're going to send the wrong message that says, I completely affirm what you're doing? Um, what would you say to that in terms of how we could navigate those decisions? Absolutely. Uh, first, I would say that if we are already having conversations where we share our perspective. We don't need to feel the pressure in every interaction to start with a disclaimer. By the way, you remember that I don't agree with you, right? Like when we establish our beliefs, we then allow the Holy Spirit to remind us in those moments when it is time to remind people of those beliefs, but we don't need to make the context of our relationship debating their perspective versus our perspective. That would be really exhausting for everyone involved in the relationship if you had to go through that introductory session of like, thank you for dinner. Now, let's cover these bases. I don't agree with you and you're in sin. Got it? Great. Here's the pasta. No, you don't, you don't need to do that. Um, but when you have those conversations and establish your beliefs, there are moments that you might have to revisit it and because it's a new context or it's a new layer. And in full disclosure, my brother and his, his partner invited us to the wedding that they had, and we went. We went because they knew where we stood and why we were going to be there. And it did require a lot of conversations over time as, you know, when the invitation came, we had to be honest with them, like, we're not sure. We have to think about it. And then when we got to the point of saying, yes, we will attend because you understand that we are not going because we're celebrating this and we're not going because we approve of this, but we're going because we want you, we need to demonstrate and want to demonstrate to you that there is no choice you will ever make that will make us not love you. And so we're going to demonstrate this love for you, not our approval or celebration of your choice. And then it, you know, unfolded a little bit more. Well, well, if you're coming, can you stand up and be one of my groomsmen? No, I cannot do that because I don't approve and I don't celebrate this. And for me, that would be endorsing and saying, I'm with you in this. I'm not with you in this. I'm with you. There's a difference. 
And so we've had to have those, those deeper conversations that have allowed us the opportunity to be present with them without celebrating their decisions. And it's difficult and it's uncomfortable, but it has provided us a great many opportunities to be involved in their life and to have influence in their lives where we may be the only believers in Jesus who have access to their life and have influence in their life because we have done these hard things. We've had these hard conversations. And, you know, you ask the question of what if they want to come and visit. And it's a thing for a lot of families during the holidays. If you have a gay identified loved one who's in a relationship, inevitably the question will be, can we come and can I bring my partner to, can I bring them home for the holidays? And this is a hard one for people where the wrestling of like, if I invite you into my home and give you a room to stay in, am I saying that you're, that I'm endorsing your sin? What do I do with that? And again, we have to have hard conversations. When my brother and his partner come to our home, they stay with us. And in the very beginning of all this, we had the conversation with them. We will provide you a room on one condition. Do not have sex in it. That for us would be providing a place for you to commit what we believe to be sin. Can you refrain from a sexual relationship over the weekend that you're here? And honestly, it's not that big of an ask. Most people can not have sex for a couple days. You're not going to die for lack of it. So if you can respect me, I can make myself uncomfortable for you, which kind of illuminates a principle of saying, you know, whenever we're engaged in these conversations, number one, never violate your conscience. If you have a conviction in your conscience that does not allow you to do something, honor that and trust the Lord with it. But always be willing to violate your comfort. Because Jesus made himself very uncomfortable for us. And he calls us to do the same. That's really helpful. Um, So you mentioned you have three girls. I do. And you've navigated some of these decisions. Yes. As a parent. Yes. Can you talk us through that? Yes. What's that look like for you? So... You know, a question that always comes up for us is, you know, well, how do you protect your kids from from this? And we, number one, our my brother and his partner have always had access to our children. Like, we have not restricted them from relationship with our kids. But one thing that we have said to them is, please do not be overly affectionate in front of our kids because it's our responsibility to teach them about sexuality, not yours. And, and if, you can, if you can agree to that, then, then we have no problems. And they've agreed to that. And then when the wedding was coming, my oldest was five years old, and my, my middle child was two at the time. We didn't have our third yet. And I knew that by virtue of the fact that they were taking this next step in relationship, that it was going to up the ante relationally. And so I knew I, we had to start having conversations with our kids about this. And so I had a conversation with my oldest daughter where most dads, a lot of dads, have deep conversations with their kids in the truck on the way to the dump. You know, just time spent together in a beautiful day with seagulls. Um, Why are there always seagulls at the dump? I don't understand. Um, Anyway, so I started the conversation with, again, wanting to make sure that my daughter knew what we were for, not just what we are opposed to. So I started the conversation by saying to my five-year-old girl, hey, Lainey, what do you think marriage is? And she said, well, it's when a man and a woman, I thought, yes. <laughs> and she said, a man and a woman, they fall in love and they decide to get married and they become a husband and wife. And I said, yes, that's right. And then I took a few moments to explain biblically why we as Christians believe that to be true and what the Lord commands. So I went to Genesis and I talked about Ephesians and I said, very simply on a five-year-old level, yes, this is why we believe that. And she said, okay, good, Dad. And I said, okay. Lainey, do you know that there are people that believe that men can marry men and women can marry women? And she said, what? And I said, yeah, it's true. She goes, well, that's not right. And I said, I know. She goes, Daddy, who believes that? She's five years old at this point, and she has had relationship with both my brother and his partner her entire life. She has never put them together as a couple because she's so trained and familiar with the healthy model that we've put in front of her that she's not threatened by the counterfeit right in front of her. And I said to her, well, hun, your Uncle Maddie and your Uncle Will. And she sat there for a second, and she goes, what? (laughs) And I said, yeah. She goes, well, dad, do they know that that's not right? And I said, well, I've had plenty of conversations with them about it. And she goes, you have? And they're still not convinced? And I said, nope. And then she got really quiet and she goes, 
dad, I, I don't think you should tell them that it's wrong anymore. And I got, honestly, I got a little concerned. And I said, okay, why? And my daughter, she's got such a tender, empathetic heart. Not pathetic heart, empathic, empathy-driven heart. Pathetic. Um, <laughs> and she just got really tender, and she said, well, Dad, I think if you keep telling them it's wrong, that it's going to make them feel sad and angry. And I thought, that is so emotionally intelligent for a five-year-old. And I said, you're right, sweetheart. It, they, they're having those responses to these conversations. And I said, but we can't just not do something. What do you think we, we need to do? Because if we're not going to continue to confront this, then how do we engage with them? And she sat there for a little bit, and she goes, well, Daddy, I think we need to love them like Jesus loves them. And I thought, I am the best father in the entire world. <laughs> and I said, you're, you're right. What does that look like for us? And so we talked, again, on a five-year-old level, what does it look like to love people who don't agree with us? And so, you know, two years later, when my second born was at five years old, I figured it's time to have these conversations. And she's a different personality than Lainey. And Lainey was there in the conversation. I said, don't give the answers, Lainey. She says, okay. I said, Livy, what do you think marriage is? Well, Daddy, it's when a man and a woman, I'm like, yes, uh, it's when a man and a woman love each other and they, they become a husband and wife and maybe they'll even have kids and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's great. That's absolutely right. And I did the same thing. I talked biblically of why we believe that. And then I got, I said, Lainey, don't give her the answers here. I said, okay. And I said, Livy, did you know that there are people that believe men can marry men and women can marry women? And she said, what? No. No, that's silly. And I said, well, there are people. She goes, Daddy, who believes that? And I said, well, your Uncle Maddie and your Uncle Will. And she goes, ah, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> I, I love this kid. I'm like, yeah, that, that does explain a lot. She goes, well, have you told them it's wrong? And same response. And I'm like, yeah, I have. And she and, and then my daughter, Lainey's like, but if we keep saying it, it's going to make him angry and mad. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Lainey, it's going to make him angry and mad. And I said, so what do you think we need to do? And she goes, I don't know. And she goes, Livy, we need to love them like Jesus loves them. And she goes, oh, yes, we need to love them like Jesus loves them. And then we had a conversation about what that looked like. And then, you know, Lainey, was, who's had this conversation before, she's like, yes, we've done our good work today. And, and Livy was like, all right. And then I said, girls, one more thing. I'm like, what? I said, did you know daddy used to be one of those people? <gasps> what? You know, I'm like, yeah. She goes, but you have mommy and you have us. And I said, I know. Isn't it amazing that the Lord can redeem and restore anyone from anything? They're seven and five years old, and I've already had a conversation with them about the meaning of marriage, biblically what it is, why we believe it, that there are people that don't agree with it, how we're supposed to respond to it, and that any sexual sin can be redeemed by the Lord Jesus at seven and five years old. Amen. So you're saying we have to talk to our kids. I'm saying you need to talk to your kids because here's the thing. The world is having conversations about sexuality and gender and marriage all the time, and a vacuum will not stay empty. You know, we, we have to continue the conversation. And honestly, the church has not been, not this church, necessarily church universal we've not been great at this conversation we have relegated it to maybe the one sermon you know a cup every year the youth group around valentine's day to make sure the kids don't have sex or whatever it is we have not had conversations about the deep theological and relational significance of marriage and sexuality and we're poorer for it we are not holier for it we are not healthier for it and we are not more relevant for it and the world is constantly in every medium, every day, trying to teach our culture and our kids and us too what the meaning and the purpose of marriage and sexuality and gender is. And we are leaving a gigantic vacuum that is being filled by the wrong message. Sexuality is a theme in scripture all the way from beginning to end. Jesus used sexual themes as teaching points 
all over the Gospels. I'll give you one example for the sake of time. When he confronted the Pharisees about their attempts at righteousness, he said, your attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags. And the literal translation of filthy rags was menstrual cloths. Now, before you blame me for bringing that up, Jesus said it, so blame Jesus. But he was saying something pictorial there that that maybe was, was lost on us because we don't get into the grit of it. But when a woman is having her period, it means there's no pregnancy, which means there's no life growing inside of her. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your attempt at righteousness to display the life of God in you is only revealing that there is no life growing in you, that you are dead on the inside. And he followed it up by saying, it's like a whitewashed tomb. You are pristine and clean on the outside, but dead and rotting on the inside. If Jesus ties spirituality to sexual themes like being born again, like, you know, the marriage analogy, and honestly, a big question for him when I get up there is like, circumcision as identity of the men of your people? Wouldn't a name badge have been easier? It's like, are you one of my people? Woo! You know, it's like, why? And yet the Lord does not blush or apologize for his tying our identity and our fidelity and our faithfulness and his relationship with us to sexuality. And we don't talk about it. We need to talk about it. Yeah, amen. We absolutely. And, and I think um, just beyond the Sunday morning conversation um, is talking about it in our homes. Absolutely. Talking about it with our communities and our friends and families. And um, it's not just here. We hope that this would be a conversation starter, if nothing else, you know, that yes. this would be a spark for some of those conversations to take place. Um, I want to get to one more question before we wrap up here. Um, kind of vamping on the, um, the role of the church, which you're talking about the church ought to talk about. This should be the place where we can have these conversations. Yeah. Go back in your story, rewind a little bit, and, and share what was your church experience when, when you were wrestling with this issue, good or bad? Um, any example that you could give us that would be helpful for us just to say, man, we want to be that kind of church or we don't want to be that kind of church. Um, some helpful direction in terms of the kind of place we could be as a church. Yeah. Well, I'll start with the bad news and finish with the good news. How's that? So when I first began to, to be honest with my struggle, um, I had hidden my, my sin and my struggle for years. And actually, I'll change. I want to say the good news first. So when I finally got to the point of confession, uh, I had a wonderful youth pastor and his wife that had invited me into ministry with them. I was in their home three or four times a week. They really treated me like an adopted son. And... You know, before I ever confessed my struggle, they had recognized what was going on. And at one point, you know, I shared this on Thursday night when I gave my testimony, and you can read it in my book if you want to buy it, which is really good. Um, they recognized that I was struggling with this, but they also recognized how afraid I was and how unsafe I felt. So when they initially confronted me, they did not confront me with the nature of my sin. Instead, they basically said, Drew, we we see that you're, you're struggling with sin and your sin is really killing you. Could you repent? Cause we love you. And they didn't name it because that would have been so scary and shameful for me. They just, they recognized that I was not who I was when they first met me, the consequences of how this was playing out. And it was not until two years later that I actually sitting on their couch, trying to get myself to articulate the words um, that this ever really came back because they saw and they watched my life and they saw the repentance that I had and they trusted the process of God in me and the work of the Lord in me to not have to directly address it. And instead they just relationally loved me and loved me and loved me. And then when I finally got to the place where I was able to confess, you know, when it came out, this is what I'm struggling with. They said, we've known for two years, Drew. And you know, you don't have to be afraid of being honest with us. And their patience to love me and not expose me was such an incredible demonstration of the love and mercy and grace of God to me that although I had accepted Christ when I was four years old, I really met God 
when I was 21 years old on their couch as demonstrated by their unconditional love, grace, mercy, and commitment to the truth. And, you know, I'd grown up hearing about homosexuality in the church, in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, which is so very chipperly starts with, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. You know, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And listing on these lists of sins, homosexual offender in it, I had always heard that, but always the emphasis had been on homosexuality, not on the other sins that anyone in this room can find themselves in, but oh, just about homosexuality. And every time that verse was preached, they left off verse 11. It always ended with, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when I was in this moment of confession with them, literally, I could not bring myself to speak the words of what I had done. James, my, my pastor, opened his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he read that passage, stopping on the words homosexual offender, and I knew that he knew. And then ended with, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, Drew, is your sin in this list? Yeah. And his wife, Amy, was like, we know named the person, named the, the time the relationship started, named when it ended. And as I wrestled with, like, how could you have known? I'm sure you would have rejected me if you had known. They said, well, we love you, and we wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. The patience that that took and the intentionality to know my life and to see my life and to trust God with the process was so powerful to me. And then after that, he said, Drew, have you ever heard verse 11? I said, no, this ends with you're going to hell. Like, this is just how I had always heard it. But verse 11 changed my life. But that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he said, Drew, that might be what you were, but it is not who you are in Jesus. Now, in contrast to that, when I confessed to the, the senior pastor of the church, in a very well-meaning response, you know, as I'm sharing with him, this is what I've done, this is what I struggle with. He said, thank you for your confession. Now, please don't tell anybody else about this. And I was shocked by that because I had such a good response from the youth pastor and from, honestly, the 50 other people in that week that I had told. Because, honestly, when you live in a prison of fear and that prison door is kicked open and you step onto it and find out every one of your worst fears is not true, that you're not going to be rejected or kicked out and that, the God, that God loves you regardless, you don't want to go back into that prison. And so he said, don't tell anyone else about this. And I, it was shook me. And I said, well, why? He said, well, honestly, people could really crucify you for this kind of information. So I believe it was self-protective. He wanted to protect me from judgment. But what we forget is that it's not honesty that condemns us. It's keeping secrets with Satan that condemns us. The truth sets us free. Confession heals us. And so I might have been a little snarky in my response, as he said, you know, you will be crucified for this information. And I may have, may have promptly gone out and got Galatians 2.20 tattooed on my leg that says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. It is Christ that lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me because if crucifixion is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Amen. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you, Drew. We're going to, I'm going to ask if you would pray for our church. Would you be willing to do that? Um, Before we do, just acknowledging that um, these are hard conversations. And for many in the room, you have different contexts than than even what Drew has or, or what I have. Um, you have family members that you're wrestling through things. Maybe you yourself are struggling with, what is my sexual identity? What is my gender identity? I'm wrestling with that. Um, these are hard things. And we just want to simply say uh, our hope, our prayer, is that we would be a church where you can wrestle, where you can process, where you can share and step into the light the way that, that Drew is describing um, so that you can allow for the body of Christ to love you the way that Jesus had intended for us to love you, which is without judgment or condemnation. That's not our job. Our job is, is to love and to communicate the truth of God's word in a loving way. And so I hope that this is a place where you can process through that, whether it be um, a personal issue, a family issue, etc. cetera. Um, and so in, in to that end, would you pray for our church that we would be that kind of people, that our, that our church would be that kind of place and that anyone in the room that may be wrestling even, just to pray for them as they process through what, um, what their 
biblical identity means, their childhood of God means to them. Absolutely. Can I add one thing before I do that? Yeah. Um, I just want to encourage you, if you are wrestling with this, you don't have to believe me and you don't have to, to agree with me. But what I encourage you to do is to go to the word of God. And for those who are here that, that maybe you're interacting with people that struggle with these things, also recognize that maybe someone's sexuality and their sexual identity is not the first thing on God's priority list. I have a good friend named Kathy Grace who lived as Keith for 13 years and she gave her life to Jesus as her Savior and Lord one year into living as Keith. And it took 12 years before of the Lord wooing her heart and earning her trust before she was even able to look at her gender identity. And so we don't know the process that the Lord is taking another person in. And we can trust that he is leading them. If they are following and trying to follow Jesus, can we leave the priority list to the Lord and be faithful with the truth, but also faithful to grace? So I'll pray for that. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend this time with brothers and sisters in you. And Father, I know that there is a multitude of experiences and histories and struggles and, and relationships represented in this room with, where this topic can be very weighty and very complex. So Father, I pray this. May you give us your wisdom and your revelation to know how to both honor you and follow you in this. May you be free to speak directly to our hearts any area of our life where you want more lordship, where you want more redemption to flow, where you want us to be more obedient, or places that you just want to heal us more. And Father, we just we invite you to come to those places and to give illumination and revelation and your presence to abide in them. And Father God, I know that there is a great deal of fear that comes with this as well. Fear relationally and fear of rejection and fear of saying the wrong things. And we know that fear is not from you. So right now in the authority in the name of Jesus, we just declare that enemy, you have no right to captivate or to control or to manipulate your God's children through fear. And so in the name of Jesus, we say fear you have no place. You have no place in this church. You have no place in our hearts. You have no place to rule our relationships. And so, Father, may you as the Prince of Peace come and rule in those places where fear or anxiety has been in authority. Father, we, we pray for a harvest. We pray for a harvest of righteousness, of, of conversion to, to sons and daughters that are not yet in the family to come and to be born into this family. We pray for the sons and daughters, literal sons and daughters that are, that are represented by people here where, where we're grieved over their choices and their, their decisions in their life. And Lord, can you teach us how to be just like you are, just like the prodigal father who waits and prays, waiting to embrace and cover our returning children. Lord, can we trust in your character, in your good character, to be the pursuer of the lost, to be the counselor to those of us who need wisdom, to be the redeemer of our mistakes, to be the God of Isaiah 61 who takes our brokenness and gives us beauty, gives us peace, gives us joy, gives us freedom, gives us sight. You are a good God. And you delight in the redemption that you offer us. You delight in the sons and daughters that return to you. And you delight in your children here. So, Father, lead us, restore us, and empower us to be your representatives, your children. We love you, Father God, and we thank you. Amen.